Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of March 10th, Pain and SLRO. I'm your host, Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the recent widening in credit spreads and a change in our view. Finally, we discuss the looming potential expiration of SLR exemptions for treasuries and reserves and what it might mean for both credit spreads and swap spreads. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, it's been almost a month now since our last podcast. I was out on paternity leave, and we had a macro monthly episode last week, so... In the time since our last podcast, did we miss anything? Yeah, just about a 50 basis point backup in treasury yields and then a 10 basis point widening in credit spreads. Now, spreads had been struggling to narrow for a couple of weeks, really since the latter half of January, before things really started to break, I think, in the past week or so. And it's a shame we don't have a podcast more frequently because we actually changed our view on this last week, coinciding with Chairman Powell's speech last Thursday. And spreads have obviously moved pretty strongly since then. But ultimately, spreads got to within three basis points of our 85 basis point target that our listeners know we've been targeting for a long time now, the all-time tights on the index. But it just got to a point for us where the risk to higher spreads just outweighed the potential reward of further spread narrowing as treasuries continued to march higher and higher. And last week was sort of the final breaking point there when Chairman Powell was not quite as dovish as the market expected. So why don't we just talk in detail a bit about the three factors that have precipitated our view to be more bearish on credit spreads here looking forward. And the first one, I think, is just relative value. I mean, that was the primary driving force behind our expectation for spreads to hit historical lows. And that relative value has really deteriorated, primarily because of higher treasury yields. And just to put it into numbers very quickly, looking at over the last 10 years, so really the last 10 years is when we've entered into this very low rate regime credit spreads have averaged a approximately 75 basis point yield enhancement over treasuries on the broad IG index. And going into late last week, that ratio was as low as about a 60% increase. And just to put that into numbers very quickly, if we look at just the past 10 years, which is really when the economy has entered this very low rate environment, broad index IG spreads have averaged about a 75% yield enhancement over treasuries. But late last week before this sort of sharp move wider, that ratio was at about 60%. So we were already on the narrow side of the average over the past decade in terms of percentage pickup, and we were already very low in terms of absolute spread. But now that relative spread had also deteriorated. And then we had sort of the final nail in the coffin, which was Chairman Powell basically saying the Fed was not going to stand in the way of Treasury yields continuing to move higher as long as that happened in an orderly way. And so I think with expectations for a strong economic recovery happening here and the potential for inflation, or at least inflation fears, treasury rates may continue to go up, and that would 
likely put upward pressure on spreads at this point, right, Dan? Yeah, exactly. And the way that I've been thinking about it is that higher treasury yields just raise the bar for further outperformance in credit spreads. And this is generally a longer term relationship. When we incorporate 10-year treasury yields into our model for high-grade corporate spreads, we find that for every 100 basis point increase in treasury yields, we see about 23 basis points or so in credit spread widening. Now, this relationship doesn't always hold in the near term. In fact, we looked back at the last nine prolonged instances of treasury yields moving higher. And during those periods, credit spreads actually narrowed during six of them. In the three episodes in which treasury yields sold off and credit spreads widened, each of these corresponded to an episode where the Fed was cutting off some support to monetary policy accommodation. These were in 2004, 2005, towards the end of the Fed's hiking cycle, and then 2013 during the taper tantrum, and then 2019 when the Fed had probably over-tightened and took out those three insurance cuts later on. And so when we look over this entire period of rising treasury yields, which really started in earnest back in August, credit spreads had outperformed for a lot of this move. We think we've gotten to the point now where higher treasury yields are a headwind to credit spreads. And we would see any further underperformance in treasury yields as likely precursor to some spread widening. Then the second factor driving our change in view has got to be corporate supply, which has really hit the gas pedal in the past, say, six weeks. Coming off a record February in terms of IG supply for February in any given year, March is off to an extremely hot start, and we're starting to see that heavy issuance begin to weigh on the market. Yeah, Dan. So we've actually had a record start to this year. We've had $353 billion in gross issuance year to date. That's stronger than any year on record, thanks to, like you said, a record February and then a really hot start to March, which has seen $93 billion in supply through just seven sessions. Although we've hit a little bit of a snag this week in supply when what had been very constructive New Deal reception and strong primary market demand has seemingly taken a turn for the worse this week when we saw yesterday and Monday, new issue concessions jumped pretty significantly. Yesterday, we had a tranche that failed to price and was dropped. And just broadly, we've seen waning New Deal statistics. That's probably due to a lot of things, and it's not necessarily indicative of massive spread widening to come. We're probably going to have to start to see new issues take a breather and some supplies slow down in the coming sessions as the market pauses to take in this new supply. Yeah, I agree with you there. And it's worth noting that we've seen higher credit quality deals struggle a little more than those further down the credit spectrum. And I think that is just further evidence behind this argument that technicals are really what's weighing on credit spreads here. I mean, you think about spreads for higher rated product, there's just less cushion there for them to absorb higher treasury yields, at least with some of the triple B stuff. You've got a little more cushion in case treasury yields continue to move up. So we've seen that execution hang in at least a little better or incrementally better than higher credit quality deals. So that's just another trend worth monitoring. And then Dan, I just want to move on quickly to the third factor driving our change in view on credit spreads here. And that's really just the outlook on the vaccine virus economic reopening front. And not because we think any of that is less optimistic. We are still firmly in the camp that we're going to see very robust economic environment in the months ahead. Once these vaccines really get into the general population over the course of the next two months, we're expecting a quite strong economic environment during the summer. Only problem there is that that's what's priced. And I just don't see how the vaccine economic recovery slash stimulus storyline, I don't see how you surprise the upside there anymore. We've got 1.9 trillion in stimulus. We've got President Biden saying that he expects there to be enough vaccines for every American adult by the end of May. We've got a strong economic recovery built in. 
all I see is downside risk from here. Yeah, exactly. And just to build off that point, you talked about how lower rated issues had been outperforming higher rated issues. I think that goes to this point as well, where a very strong fundamental picture has been priced in. We've seen that through ratings actions in the investment grade corporate market for the first time really since the pandemic rating upgrades are outpacing downgrades. And so that's why we're seeing outperformance by these triple Bs. There's less fear of fallen angel risk now, but that's all already priced. And there's now downside risk to that. If there is a worsening in this fundamental picture, that could really start to weigh on spreads as well. It's hard to see positive fundamentals really dragging spreads narrower from this point. And it's worth noting that even in the very robust economic environment that we're expecting in the next couple of months, we're probably going to see some cracks, right? We're probably going to see some businesses that turn out to be not viable that have hung on this far using a combination of monetary stimulus, fiscal support, PPP loans, whatever you want to call it different types of stimulus to kind of make it through the pandemic and then reopen. And we're going to see stimulus fall off here in this scenario. We're going to see the Fed maybe not being less supportive, but certainly not more so. And we're going to see there's going to be some businesses that just aren't going to make it and we'll have to close up shop. And so even in that sort of optimistic scenario that we believe is priced, there's probably going to be a modicum of pain at least still to come. So Agreed, Dan. I just don't see a lot of upside there. So we've only got risk on that front now. And given the way everything's moving, just the combination of these three factors was just really too much from a risk standpoint. You know, I wouldn't have a hard time believing if you told me our spread's going to be 20 basis points wider a month from now. I could see a scenario where that's true. I have a harder time seeing a scenario where spreads are going to be 20 basis points narrower. So when that happens, you know, it's definitely time to take our foot off the credit overweight gas pedal. We're still sort of neutral now and leaning underweight at this point. But I guess to put it in a nutshell, we are going to see probably some pockets of outperformance. We're going to see days where unemployment reports come in really high like we had last week or the equity market's up or good news on the vaccine front. There's a lot more being rolled out every day. And we're going to see some pockets of spread narrowing here. I think the the main change in our view would be that we should view those pockets as opportunities to sell into strength more than what should be expected here. Because I think in the next couple of months, spreads might start to move a little bit wider. And that brings us to the next topic we're going to talk about here today. And that is touching on the SLR storyline that's made a lot of headlines recently. Just to sort of set up how this matters for credit spreads, our listeners will know we've made sort of a big deal about the potential for crowding out. We talked about heavy corporate supply as one of the main factors for why we were changing our view on credit spreads in the last segment. And we didn't mention crowding out, which is something that we're definitely monitoring given how much treasury supply is supposed to come. Again, $1.7 trillion after Fed purchases and coupon supply this year, easily a record. And in a market environment where rates are going up and there's potentially some difficulty in finding a home for $1.7 trillion in treasuries as inflation fears and rates go up, you do run the risk of crowding out private market borrowers, and that's particularly acute given how heavy corporate supply has been. So how does that bring us to the SLR? Well, there's the potential for the SLR becoming an effective increase in treasury supply, and we'll get to how that happens. But I guess first from a high level, for anyone that may not be familiar, Dan, why don't you give us just the sort of quick overview of what's going on with the SLR in the next 20 days and what it could mean? Yeah. So back in April, the Fed exempted treasuries and reserve deposits from banks' supplementary leverage ratios. And these ratios apply to the GSIBs as well as Category 3 banks, which are generally banks with $250 billion in total assets or more. 
And this exemption of Federal Reserve deposits and treasuries is scheduled to expire at the end of March, but there's a lot of uncertainty over whether or not that will be extended. And there's reason to expect that it would be extended given this looming supply you just talked about, in addition to likely increase in reserves from the Treasury running down its cash balances. In 2020, banks picked up a significant portion of Treasury net issuance because of this SLR exemption. Now, if this exemption were allowed to expire, there's reason to think that banks would have to unload some of the Treasuries they picked up over the past year, which would probably exacerbate some of the moves that we'd see in the market regardless. So why don't we start there, Dan? Why don't we start with just trying to value the size of the potential flow coming off the back of the SLR. And then we can talk about market ramifications and things like that afterward. You alluded to the fact that even just looking at Federal Reserve Z1 data, banks have picked up upwards of $300 billion in treasuries in the past year, which is what nearly a 50% move higher. They've also added about a trillion dollars in reserves that sit on the bank balance sheet. So banks have grown significantly in the last year. And if this SLR exemption goes away, there's the potential that reserve slash treasury holdings are going to have to be reduced significantly. The question is how much? So to answer that question, we looked at the SLRs of all the GSIB and Category 3 banks that we could get data for as of most recent data, which is Q4 2020. And we looked at their SLRs, both including and excluding the exemption for treasuries and reserves. And what we found was that in general, GSIB SLR scores were about 100 basis points higher, including the exemption, and that excluding the exemption, which might happen at the end of this month, we'd get SLR scores as low as 5.8% or so. Now, it's important to note here that the minimum SLR that has to be maintained is 5%. And the lowest we said for a GSIB was 5.8%. So still 80 basis points above that level. So there is also uncertainty over whether or not banks would even have to take action or if they would just run lower SLRs. But what we did was we went and looked at then the SLR they ran at the end of 2019 to try and get a sense of, okay, let's consider that a quote unquote natural rate of SLR for a bank. That's the SLR that they would like to maintain. All banks want to have a minimum buffer above the 5% for a couple of reasons, just uncertainty over how some calculations go for huge banks into quarter end. Also for analytical purposes, nobody wants to see a bank getting close to those minimums. So they all want to be above. And we looked at their 2019 SLR is their quote-unquote natural SLR level that they would like to be at. And then what we did was we looked at the SLR excluding exemptions. So let's say 5.8%. That was the number we were using before. And then let's say that the bank's 2019 SLR was 6.3%. So we made the argument that the bank would want to get back to their natural level of SLR from 58 to 6.3. And they would do that by reducing reserve and treasury holdings. Okay, so we did this for all the GSIB banks. And we came up with an aggregate need to reduce reserves and treasury holdings by the GSIB banks of just over $600 billion, okay? And then we had to try and answer what would be the mix between reserves and treasuries. So to answer that question, we went and looked at how much each individual GSIB bank has increased reserves and treasuries in the past year. Again, the theory here being that a bank has some optimal mix of reserves and treasuries as they deal with their myriad of regulations they have to abide by, you know, LCR, SLR daylight overdraft, living will stuff. There's just some natural mix of reserves and treasuries. And what we did was we just assumed that for each individual bank, which was on aggregate over $600 billion need to reduce reserves, we said that each individual bank would reduce reserves and treasuries according to the same ratio that they increased those two things in the past year. So basically holding the mix of reserves and treasuries constant for the banks that would theoretically 
want to increase their SLRs once the exemption went away. And a lot of numbers here, but just cutting to the chase here with the bottom line, we found that if banks ultimately increased their SLRs back to where they were at the end of 2019, we saw the potential for reductions to reserves of about $400 billion and a potential reduction in treasury holdings of about $200 billion. But Dan, the risk to that might even be to the upside in treasuries because reducing reserves is easier said than done. You have to sort of get rid of deposits. That's the only way to get rid of reserves. So if reserves are more sticky, banks may actually have to sell more than that $200 billion in treasuries. Now, here I want to stress, this is our estimate of what the potential flow could be in one scenario from the SLR, where banks want to get back to the 2019 level. But there is an extremely high amount of uncertainty here surrounding the SLR. And Dan, why don't you walk us through some of the dimensions of that uncertainty and why we can't just say a bank's going to sell $200 billion in treasuries. In fact, they might even not even sell any, or they could sell more than that. Where is all this uncertainty coming from? Yeah, so there's a lot of sources of uncertainty. First of all, most obviously, the SLR exemption could be extended. And that extension could take many forms. But in our base case, we see that exemption being extended three to six months, which would give banks at least a longer runway to manage their reserves and treasuries to where they need to be in the future. Second, like you mentioned, the GSIPs currently have SLR ratios that are compliant even if you include treasuries and reserves, which are currently exempted. So they don't necessarily need to do anything to become compliant right now. Yes, they would probably prefer to see higher SLRs similar to the ratios they had before this exemption, but they don't necessarily need to do anything to become compliant right now. And so that gives banks more time to manage these ratios. Third, banks could raise more capital. That's possible too, and that would negate any need to manage down their reserves and treasuries. And fourth, let's assume that banks do need to manage higher their SLRs. They could always manage down reserves. Now, the stock of reserves in the banking system is more or less fixed by Fed policy, but that doesn't mean that the current share held by GSIBs and Category 3 banks needs to sit with those same banks. Reserves could be spread more evenly across the banking system, which would negate the amount of treasuries needing to be sold. Yeah, I think you do a great job laying out the uncertainty there. I do think that if we do ultimately get to that fourth layer there, so first, the the SLR is not extended. Banks do decide to take action to get their SLRs higher, and they don't hold more capital. Getting rid of reserves is pretty difficult, and we already had $400 billion in reserve reduction in our base case. So there is significant potential for selling of treasuries, I think, if we get to that fourth layer of uncertainty. But that's still a lot of layers to get to before we get to that $200 billion flow. It's certainly a potential scenario, but there's a lot of uncertainty around it, as I think we just demonstrated. So what does SLR ultimately mean for credit spreads and then for swap spreads? Let's start with credit spreads. Well, if the expiration of treasury and reserve exemptions for the SLR is ultimately just an effective increase in treasury supply, then the impact on credit spreads would be likely the impact we'd expect from an actual increase in treasury supply, which you laid out earlier. Near term, that's a spread narrower probably, but then in the longer term, it can actually be a spread widener as we deal with some of that crowding out impact that we touched on earlier. And at the point where we are now, where rates are going higher, spreads have already turned, I'd actually be more worried about credit spreads as a scenario where banks were suddenly selling significant sizes of treasuries, at least in the corporate sector. Maybe some of that high-end agency SSA paper that's more government-like, maybe that would benefit from something like this. But corporate paper, where there's a ton of supply outstanding, I think you then that would be more worrisome for spreads. And then talking about swap spreads, obviously the market has interpreted the end of the SLR as a strong, narrower for swap spreads. And there's certainly... A very strong argument to be made for that. But 
I think the near-term outlook for swap spreads is a little more ambiguous than perhaps the market has been pricing in. I mean, you take in conjunction the end of SLR exemptions, but also the paydown in Treasury's account at the Fed, which is an influx in reserves. And I'm not actually certain that on balance, that's going to result in narrowing influence on swap spreads. I mean, just in the past, what, month and a half, we've seen Treasury's cash balance run down about $300 billion. And in that time, we've seen inflows into money funds pick up. We've seen SOFR trading at the very, very low end. Obviously, there's a lot of things going on there, GSC cash, what have you. But it's not a coincidence that Treasury's cash balance has run down $300 billion and SOFR is at the very low end of the range. And we're only down $300 billion. We could be down another four to $500 billion in just a matter of weeks from here as stimulus payments start to come out and Yellen runs down that cash balance. And so we could get an even larger flow putting downward pressure on repo rates. And if we estimated $200 billion in treasury supplies coming from banks at the end of SLR, let's even double that. Let's say we're wrong by half and it's $400 billion in treasury sales. Well, then that's enough to merely offset the reserve creation coming from treasury's cash balance being run down at the Fed. So I certainly think there is a scenario where the end of the SLR is extremely negative for swap spreads and you get a strong narrowing. I just think we might have already priced in a lot of that. And you look at the uncertainty you talked about, Dan, among all those dimensions there. First, will it be extended? Even if it's not, are banks going to suddenly start liquidating hundreds of billions of treasuries? I think they'll sell some treasuries, but they're not going to immediately have to increase their SLRs all the way back to where they were at the end of 2019. They can say, we had this ratio exemption. Over time, we're going to build it back up. So it's not going to be a sudden $200 billion flow that hits the market. It's going to be probably over the span of quarters that those SLRs increase. They could also hold some capital, which they'll probably do at least some of that on the margin and reduce reserves. So there's just a ton of uncertainty there. And even in the worst case scenario, where they just were to suddenly sell a lot of treasuries in a very short amount of time. We have this big influx of reserves coming from the paydown of the treasury's TGA account that's probably enough to at least offset and probably be actually larger than the flow of treasury sales coming from the SLR exemption. So given the narrowing we've seen in swap spreads already down to eight basis points in five-year spreads right now, you know, I still think long-term we're probably going to see continued downward pressure on swap spreads. But in the very short term, I think this SLR move in swap spreads might be a bit overdone. And I, I could actually see some value in some tactical long positions in belly swap spreads at the moment. Do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, like you mentioned, with regard to these cross currents between the future of SLR and Treasury's cash balance. My preference would be, if not to initiate a tactical widener, to maybe just wait for more clarity on the SLR and what happens with Treasury's cash balance. But they're sure to bring some more volatility in the near term. Hard to argue with any of that. Okay, Dan, obviously we've covered a lot in today's episode, but there's a lot going on right now. Anything else you want to talk about today or come back next week and see where we are? I think that probably covers it for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. 
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 